Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Just to give you a little context of where we're at here in uh, Colossians, Paul is uh, countering false teachings, and there's a kind of a mix. There's a lot of false teachings that are going on in uh, the in Colossus at the time. There was uh, Gnosticism, which is like a secret knowledge, and. Uh, Basically, the Gnostics denied the deity of Jesus Christ, and there's all kinds of things that they believe. But uh, so this was something that was prevalent in Coloss. Uh, the worship of angels, uh, mysticism, was uh, uh, part of it as well. Um, asceticism, which, if you're not familiar with that, it was extreme self-denial in order to uh, to achieve a higher spiritual consciousness. Uh, and then there was Jewish legalism uh, that was basically, the, there were the Judaizers that were trying to incorporate uh, Judaism with Christianity. And, you know, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it was, but it was just like a, a, a kind of a mix of everything that was going on there. And so Paul was uh, addressing, it was really like a, a smorgasbord of spiritual ideas and beliefs. And so, you know, if you were there in Colossus, you basically kind of, you know, pick a little bit of this, pick a little bit of that, and kind of develop your own faith, basically. And so Paul is is counteracting that. Now, Paul could spend a lifetime trying to teach about each different thing and trying to address each different thing that, you know, the winds that come through and stuff. But what Paul did instead was he got them rooted and in, 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 in gave them the foundation of the Scriptures, teaching them the truth. Because, you know, if you teach someone the truth and they understand the truth and they have a good foundation in the truth, you know, it doesn't matter what the mix is of the lies that come their way. They'll be able to recognize what's a lie. You know, a lot of times uh, with false teachings, they don't just come out, you know, blatantly false. Sometimes there's, there's a little bit of truth mixed in with some false stuff. It's like truth, truth, and then there's a lie. Truth, truth, and a lie. And, and so if you know the truth, you can kind of sort through that. And uh, so that's really, I believe, what Paul is trying to do here is to give them a, a firm foundation of their faith. And uh, in the first part of chapter 2, which we talked about last week, Paul was equipping the Colossians to not be taken booty. We talked about that, not to be taken booty, not to be uh, uh, deceived by those who would entice them with, with words and empty deceit and, he call, and human philosophy. And uh, starting now in verse 11, Paul is going to address legalism in general, but Jewish legalism in particular. And then in verse 18, he'll address uh, mysticism, the worship of angels. And finally, the end of the chapter, he deals with asceticism. So starting with verse 11 here, um, you know, what the Judaizers were doing, basically, it wasn't that they were denying salvation by Christ, but they were basically saying that isn't enough. You know, yeah, it's so fine if you want to put your faith in Christ, you Gentile, but you also need to, to be circumcised. You need to be like a good Jew in order to be a good Christian. And so it was Jesus and, in this case, circumcision. And unfortunately, that's something that, you know, uh, not in circumcision, obviously, but there, there are things that people come to you and go, well, you know, it's fine. It's, it's Jesus and this. And you could fill in the blank, whatever it is. And uh, Paul's like, no, it's, it's Christ alone. And so in verse, uh, chapter, excuse me, in, in verse 11 of chapter 2 is where we pick it up. It says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the very first thing Paul says here is that in Christ you were, past tense, already circumcised. And he's speaking to the Gentiles. Hey, you were already circumcised, but opposed to a physical outward circumcision, your circumcision was inward and it was spiritual. When did that happen? It was when you repented of your sins and turned to Christ in faith. Now, probably most of you know what circumcision is, but it's really, it's what it is. is it's, a, it's a cutting off uh, of literal flesh and casting it away. And when a person is born again, they're cutting off the old self and casting that away. The mindset of the Judaizers was that if you followed all the external requirements, that meant you were righteous before God. So, you know, you needed to be circumcised in order to be right before God. Um, Those of you who raised or are raising outwardly compliant but inwardly rebellious children. You know what those are? Outwardly compliant, but they're inwardly rebellious. They're kids that, you know, you know they, they do everything in your presence, yet you know that their heart is corrupt, and, and you know, and they're, 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 they're rebelling. And so, you know, you can get them to do some right in your presence. They'll comply with your rules. But if their heart's not right, you know, as soon as they're out of your presence, man, they do whatever they want. That's, that's an inwardly rebellious child. And, and the problem with that is it's the heart problem. And so, you know, externally, yeah, you can go through all the outward rituals. You can go through everything to look right on the outside. But if the heart's not changed, it doesn't make a difference. And so, uh, you know, even in the Old Testament, as God was giving the children of Israel uh, circumcision, the covenant of circumcision, he always was speaking of the circumcision of the heart. That was God's desire. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 16. says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That was God's desire all along in giving the covenant of circumcision. And so that's why Paul, you know, in his letter to 1 Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, his first letter, he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. It's an issue of the heart. So before having a relationship with Christ, my old self, the old Don, was a slave to sin. And I was unable to keep God's commandments. But when I put my faith in Christ, my old self was cut off and cast away. That circumcision of Christ took place. And Christ gave me a new heart that's no longer a slave to sin. Christians don't need to be circumcised. They already are when they come to faith in Christ spiritually. They need to be baptized. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean that Christians just replaced the Jewish external rite of circumcision with the external rite of baptism? You know, there are a lot of Christians that believe that. There are a lot of people that say, you know, uh, as long as you are baptized, you're in. It's really sad when you go to, I've been to, I remember one time, a a family, uh, kind of a distant family member, uh, she passed away and, and, you know, my wife and I, we knew her life and she was into drugs and just a bad, just a terrible life. And, uh, but yet she had been baptized as an infant. 
And I remember the, the, the preacher there at the funeral just saying, well, we know she's going to heaven. Really? Wow. Because she had that external rite of baptism. Baptism doesn't change us. It doesn't make you or right, you or I righteous before God. It doesn't save us. What is baptism then? It's an outward recognition of a change that's already taken place in my heart, in your heart. So now Paul explains what it's all about. In verse 12, he says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We were buried with him. You know, you can only bury a dead man, of course, unless you're Stephen King and you're writing some horror movie, but you know, you only bury dead people. You might say, well, I'm alive. How can I be buried? What are we talking about? What we're really talking about is identification with Christ. You see, when I, came to fi- when I come to faith in Christ, or when you came to faith in Christ, your old self died. My old self died. What do you do with a dead man? You bury it. And so, buried. We're buried with Christ, in which you were also raised with Him. You know, the old dawn was buried. The new dawn, a new creation, was raised with Christ. That transformation that takes place when you and I come to faith in Christ. And he says it's through the faith in the working of God. You think about that. The powerful working of God. God who raised Jesus from the dead. He is able to raise you and I into newness of life. So he continues, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Trespasses, that word actually means a side slip, a lapse or a deviation. It's either intentional or excuse me, unintentional error or willful transgression. In other words, you're either willfully or unintentionally overstepping God's bounds. But in any case, you've stepped across the line. You've crossed the line. You've sinned. And so he says, you're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You're dead. You know, he doesn't say you're sick. You need healing. He doesn't say, you know, there, there, there's, there's, you know, you just need to be uh, reformed or anything like that. He says you're dead. There's no possibility of getting better. There's no hope. You're helpless to change yourself. You're unable to cut away that flesh from your life by yourself. And he says, in you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he has made alive together with him. You know, this isn't like esoteric uh, ideas and concepts we're talking about. This is the truth. This is what takes place when you and I put our trust in Christ. Before you and I are born again, we're spiritually dead. And then when you and I repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ, we're made spiritually alive. Do you know the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life? The moment you do. In fact, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Oh yeah, your physical body is deteriorating. And uh, some of us are experiencing that, you know, we're, we're realizing it more and more as we get older. One day we will physically die. But the moment that you put your faith in Christ for salvation, you have eternal life. That's why Paul confidently says, man, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
and were made alive together with him. Jesus said in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So, so what's all the truth here? Jesus, was raised, who was raised from the dead, comes to live in the new believer's heart. Comes to dwell in you. You're, you're made alive together with him. And he says, continues here, he says, Having forgiven you all trespasses. And we're given the promise of eternal life. You and I are forgiven of our sins. We're cleansed from the stain of our sins. And we're given a new heart. You know, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25, it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments to do them and do them. That's what's happened when you and I put our trust in Christ. So he's forgiven us all our transgresses, uh, excuse me, willful or un- unintentional. And then verse 14 says, having wiped out, another word is blotted out, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's a powerful verse. Jesus Christ wiped out or blotted out that written law that was written against you and I, making it no longer legible. There's no, you, you can't go back and read and go, oh yeah, he committed this or she committed that. No, it's, it's wiped. It's blotted out. The law that was against us, that could be translated the law that concerned us or that applied to us, which was contrary to us. It was opposed to us and the law condemned us. Now, and then having, uh, he says he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, some people say that Paul was addressing an ancient practice of canceling a debt where they would, they would, uh, they would write your debt and then, and then it would be written down. And, and, but to cancel it, they would take it and they would nail, run a nail through it so you couldn't read it. I don't, I don't know if that's literally what what's Paul is talking about or not. But here's the point. Here's what this all means for you and I. And I love the way John Gill, uh, one of the commentators, says it. There is nothing in the law standing against the saints. It's blotted out and cannot be read. It is took away and cannot be seen. It is nailed to the cross of Christ and is torn to pieces thereby that nothing can ever be produced from it to their hurt and condemnation. I don't know about you. But man, the fact that there is now no more condemnation for me, that, what, how freeing is that? I, it's just, it's like that, lift, that burden, that, that heaviness. You know, even if you're forgiven, you know, you, you can sin against someone, uh, and we do, obviously. And you might go to a person and say, will you forgive me? And, and they'll, they'll forgive you. Hopefully they will. You know, if they're a believer, they're supposed to forgive you. But they still have that conscious, you know, you hurt me. And I don't know if I can trust you again. You know, that's not what Jesus does with you and I. He forgives us. And then the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. It's gone. 
You, have you ever gone north and south? You know, if you go north on the globe, eventually when you get somewhere north, you, probably North Pole, I guess, you just keep going, you're going south, right? But you know if you go east, you're always going east. You're never going to reach west. You go west, you're never going to reach east. There's a picture there. You, you can never, that's how far God's removed our sins from us. I don't know if you're happy about that this morning, but man, I'm like, praise God. And then he gets to verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now here Paul is uh, alluding to uh, a practice of the Roman Empire, where if you were a general, you know, you, you, you were victorious in a battle, you would parade your enemy publicly in chains. It would give glory to the victor, of course, but it was to point out that the foe was disarmed, no longer a threat, vanquished, and in chains. And Paul is talking about the principalities and powers. And what he's speaking of is Satan and demons. Now, I don't know if you realize this, maybe you didn't, but before you were born again, they had power. They had influence over you. They were a threat to you. Before you were saved, they could accuse you and they could torment you because of your sin. That's the grip that they had on you and I. The Bible even says that Satan is an accuser of the brethren, of the believers. However, he doesn't get very far with his accusations because they've been blotted out. And Jesus is in heaven right now. He's our lawyer representing us before the Father. So Christ disarmed principalities and powers. What that says is there are principalities and powers. There are, there's a spiritual forces out there of evil. They are stronger than you and I. They are more powerful than you and I. But the good news is Christ disarmed them. The believer need not fear the forces of evil. You know, the Bible tells us that the devil roars, uh, prowls about and roars as an angry lion. And you go, that's scary. Well, you know what? You need to understand one thing as a believer in Jesus Christ. Yeah, the devil does prowl around and roar like an angry lion, but he's been declawed and defanged by Jesus Christ. He has no more influence over you, no more power over you. He triumphed over them. When did Christ triumph over powers and principalities? Man, at Calvary, at the cross. But then you might say, well, why does Paul then say in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Why does he say that if, if, if the enemy's been vanquished? Because they haven't given up the fight. They're still wrestling with you and I. There is a spiritual battle going on. But it's interesting, in that passage, you guys are familiar with it, in Ephesians 6.16, Paul says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench or extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Once you and I understand and believe that Jesus Christ forgave your sins and blotted out your transgressions, it's that faith which extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy. Jesus Christ has triumphed over the devil. They have no more claim on you, period. Whatever claim they had was taken away at the cross. 
Now we are told in Scripture that we're to be sober, we're to be vigilant, right? We're to be on the alert against the devil. We're to resist him. We're not to give place to the devil. We're to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. In fact, he even says we're to forgive one another so that Satan can't take an advantage of us. But we're never told to triumph over the devil. We're never told to have victory over the devil. Why? Because Christ already has won that for you and I. He already has had victory. For the believer, again, Satan and his demons are defanged, disarmed, antagonists. And now Paul is addressing legalism. Verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. It's interesting, and I don't know if you know any, but I've, I've come across some believers that, you know, they, they've kind of like incorporated some of the, the Jewish traditions and the Jewish practices, and, and you know, I don't have any problem with that. Um, but I do have a problem when it becomes a legalistic thing. Where they start saying, you know, we really need to start observing this. And, and when do you worship? Is it, a, is it on a Sunday or is it on the Sabbath? You know, it's like, wait, well, you know, the Lord's Day. What do you... And people can get so legalistic about these things. What they fail to realize is that those things are shadows of Christ. Christ is the real deal. Christ is the reality. You know, if I came home and, and my wife, you know, I come in the, in the room and my wife starts hugging my shadow on the ground, I'd be like, Teresa, get up. I mean, that's a shadow. I'm right here. Hug me. You know, it's so absurd. And yet people, they always want to worship, not always, but people typically or, or commonly want to worship the shadow and not the reality. That's what legalism is. You're worshiping a shadow, not the real deal. Verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. It's an area we really need to be careful here because Satan can transform himself into a messenger of light in order to deceive people. He says, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Just a word of caution. Don't get so caught up in people's supposed visions. And I'm not saying that, that all people's visions are supposed, but according to this scripture anyways, they can be false visions. And here, Paul is saying it's a way to draw a cult-like following after themselves. So just be discerning when people start sharing things like that with you. Verse 19, And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Now, my wife knows my mind. Sometimes she'll make a comment and I'll, a song just come, pops into my head and I'll sing a song related to whatever comment. Or, you know, I, I watched a lot of television when I was a kid. And so, you know, I always think that I can recite these commercials from back when I was just a young, you know, and it's like they're there. I mean, they're, they're, they're locked away in there. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard that commercial recently. A body that is in motion tends to stay in motion. That, that phrase always sticks with me. A body that is in motion tends to stay in motion. Well, look at this verse. A body separated from the head tends to die very soon. You know, you sever a head from the body. The body may run around, flop. It may twitch. It may look as though it's alive, but trust me, it's dead. A body very uh, excuse me a body separated from the head will very soon be dead 
very soon. You and I need to be connected to the head, to Jesus Christ. We need to be, you know, as soon as, as, soon as a church has, has turned away from Christ, turned away from the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be very long before it's going to be a dead church. Same with believers. If you and I, Christ's body, remain, uh, excuse me, remain connected to Christ the head, we're going to be nourished, be fed by Him. We're going to be knit together in love, and we're going to grow with the increase that is from God. You won't grow in your faith. You won't grow in your walk apart from Christ. You can't. And then finally here, Paul addresses the philosophy of asceticism. Verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. You're not subject to these regulations, Paul says, but why do you subject yourselves to them? Because they're commandments and doctrines of men. And he says there in verse 23, these things have an, in, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Self-denial of asceticism, it appears wise, but it is self-imposed Religion. You know what self-imposed religion is? It's will worship. Look what I can do. I'm more spiritual than you because I've got more willpower. I can resist those, those temptations. And I'm, I'm better than you because I'm resisting. I'm standing strong. Did you know that will worship is the sin of Lucifer? In Isaiah 14, this is speaking of Lucifer. It says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's, that's will worship. It's prideful and it will lead to a fall. And if you, in your own strength, start using your own will to deny your flesh, I got news for you. You're not strong enough. Sooner or later, you're going to indulge in that flesh. That, that very thing that you're focusing on, I'm not going to do it, man, I can do it. Sooner or later, you're going to fall and you're going to do it. Because you're doing it in your own strength. You're doing it by your own will. Now, you know, for believers, I, I don't know, you know, asceticism, of course, that's, that was a whole philosophy, but think about it as believers, you know. There are things, you know, if I'm looking forward to eternity, you know. When I'm in a new body, I don't have that sinful flesh. I can worship God in, in just purity and, and sinlessness. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. We still have that body of flesh. And I think Christians rightfully desire to be rid of those sinful fleshly desires. And we want to know, man, how can I not fall to those temptations you know, if denying myself in my own strength, according to my willpower, won't cut it, well, how else can I do it? How else can I, can I not do those sins that I don't want to do? Paul writes in Galatians 5.16, 
He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Well, okay, how do you do that? What's the key to walking in the Spirit? You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Andrew Murray on the fullness of the Spirit, and, and uh, he, he points out something I thought was really interesting, and it, it just caught my eye. He's talking about the disciples. You know, they had the best teacher. They, I mean, this Bible study is it's just me, right? But, I mean, they had Jesus Christ teaching them. I mean, you can't get a better teacher than Jesus, guaranteed. And he was teaching them over and over to be the least, to love one another, to be the servant of all. And he was teaching them. And so they're getting these good teachings. And you look at their lives, and what were they doing? <laughs> they were, you know, jockeying for position, trying to find out who's the greatest. They were constantly doing that. In fact, even the night of Christ's betrayal at the Lord's Supper, they're jockeying over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yet they had the best teaching. Now, imagine that I was a really good teacher. You're sitting here getting these good teachings. Do you know that just saying, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, uh, this head knowledge, I'm getting this knowledge of what I shouldn't do, I guarantee you that's not good enough. You need to walk in the Spirit. The teaching isn't going to cut it. Do you know what changed? It wasn't until after Pentecost when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It was at that point you start looking at their life, you start looking in the book of Acts, and you start seeing that they're laying down their lives for others. That they're no longer jockeying for who's the greatest. Finally, they have the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside them. And it's at that point that they're living in a way that's pleasing Christ. They're finally doing what Christ had been telling them all along, but it wasn't until they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for you and I. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the men's retreat, they were talking about this verse. They said, it's, it's but be, be, excuse, <laughs> I'm going to mess it up here, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. The filling of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you this. How do you know that you were saved? Think about it. How do you know you were saved? Well, you know, the Bible teaches that if I confess my sins, that Jesus is faithful and just, He'll forgive me my sins, you know, and I'll be born again. You know, you have all the verses that you can stand on, and yeah, that's great. You know the Bible. You know what the Bible says. You stand on those promises. But when it comes down to it, really, it's a faith thing, right? Do you, when you accepted Christ, did you feel saved? I, I know that there was a tremendous burden lifted off of me, but I didn't have this saved feeling, you know, necessarily. And it, it, it wasn't an e- e- emotional thing. So how did I know I was saved? I believed God's word, and I stood on those promises. And there were times when the enemy would come and try to accuse me of stuff, and I'd have to go back to them and go, no, I, you know what? Those sins have been bought and played for, and I'm forgiven, and I'm clean. It, it's, a, it's a walking in faith. You know that that's the same with filling of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not like you pray to receive the filling of the, of the Holy Spirit, and then it's like, okay, I'm waiting for this numb feeling to come over me, or all of a sudden my limbs will start shaking, or I'll have this tremor in my voice or something. It's not that at all. 
It's received by faith. Just like salvation is received by faith. You ask in faith. Bible says in Luke, Jesus said, you know, uh, if, a, if a son asks for an egg, will, will, will the father give him a rock? He says, but, but you being evil, you, you give good gifts to your kids. And then he says, how much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus Christ wants you and I to walk in his spirit. Now, you receive the spirit when you're born again. He's a sign and a seal of your salvation. Back in John 20, Jesus told the disciples, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was before the Lord's Supper. But they were still not walking in that spirit. They were still doing, you know, doing what they were doing. And it wasn't until they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that things changed. And you can be here today, a born-again believer, and if you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. But are you filled? Are you being filled with the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? It's, it's just a submission, a surrender to the Holy Spirit. You ask in faith, and then you believe that you've received it. And so that's the key here. Because I know for myself, you know, you, you, you want to avoid certain temptations. You want to stay away from different things. And if you try to do it in your own strength, man, it ain't going to work. Sooner or later, you're going to fall. So we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stand up? I actually finished a little early this morning, but it's okay. I don't know about you. You know, I don't know if you struggle with certain areas in your life, and it's like I can't, I just can't seem to get beyond this one area of my life. That's just a struggle. I want to give you an opportunity as we pray to just ask Jesus to fill you with his spirit afresh. You know, I have to do that daily. The reason why is because I leak, man. I, I just, man, I just, you know, towards the end of the day, I found, man, man, I'm not walking by the Spirit. I'm walking in the flesh again. Lord, I need you to fill me again. And he does. He fills us if you just ask him. And I don't know when the last time you asked for the filling of the Holy Spirit, but I want to give you an opportunity to do it this morning. And so as we pray, I just, if you would like to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, I just raise your hand, and, I, and, and I'm just going to pray for you. We'll all close our eyes so you don't have to be, feel like you're being embarrassed, like I've been walking in the flesh all this. No, we don't care. We all do that from time to time. And so I just want to give you an opportunity um, just to respond to the message. And, and I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to, to you this morning. So why don't we pray? If, if you want to receive a filling of the Holy Spirit afresh, just raise your hand, and I, I just want to pray for you this morning. Father, Lord, you see the hands. Lord, you know the hearts of these people. Lord, we desire so much to not walk in the flesh. Lord, we, we want to please you, Lord, and we struggle with those, those areas so often, Father. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters this morning and their desire to live godly lives and clean lives. And Lord, we're in a fleshly body, Lord. We're battling against it all the time. Father, we need your spirit this morning. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have just prayed just even now to, to receive that filling afresh, Lord God, that, Lord, your Spirit would just pour down on them like water. Lord, that you would flood them and fill them to the brink. Lord, that they'd be overflowing with your Spirit, Lord God. Because that's the only way that we can walk 
in the Spirit is by being filled with the Spirit. And so, Lord, I thank you for these individuals who have prayed in faith. And, Lord, I pray that they would believe that they've received that filling and that, Lord, now that they would walk in that filling. And so I thank you this morning, Lord. Lord, we give you this morning. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.